G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas, and what idea is more dangerous than the notion that we are currently being visited by extraterrestrial civilizations who are flying through our skies and occasionally being spotted, mostly these days, by military fighter pilots whose stories have recently been exposed and investigated by congressional inquiries. What is going on with UFOs? A lot of people have a lot of claims. One person who has investigated these claims is Brian Dunning. He's an expert on critical thinking, on science, and specifically on scepticism. His podcast, Skeptoid, debunks conspiracy theories, and he has a new movie called The UFO Movie They Don't Want You to See. Here, he tries to get to the bottom of what's really going on with uh, UFOs. If you're a believer, you might might find this a bit uh, dejecting. And if you're uh, not a believer, but you just want to understand, then you'll find this inspiring and hopefully insightful. Enjoy the one and only Brian Dunning. changing kind of attitude towards uh, UFOs over the past like seven or eight years has your has your impression of whether or not it's likelier or less likely that UFOs are caused by alien civilizations changed at all uh no there's there hasn't really been any change to the science on this there's been a lot of ufologists telling old UFO stories but there's not been nothing new what about the new stories of, you know, military people having seen things that we hadn't heard about before? Like, why is there this escalation in interest slash anecdote? Um, well, the the stories that we're, we're hearing, if we're speaking about like what David Grush brought up in front of Congress, he talked about Roswell and an old debunked Italian story from 1933. Those are not new stories. So <laughs> I repeat, there just has not been anything new. Why is there a renewed interest then? Because, well, okay, I mean, it's a, that's a long story. The whole, um, this whole UFO narrative has been being pushed by a small number of career ufologists and UFO authors who got their story published in the New York Times in 2017 and have largely been able to control the narrative ever since then. And I, I, I hope that they're finally starting to lose their grasp on this with all of the new UFO committees and task forces repeatedly saying that there's nothing to it and they haven't found anything of interest. So I'm hoping that's going to fade, but we'll see. And, and these new task forces and the military's interest and so on, are they motivated because there are more crackpots in Congress, because they're feeling pressure from constituents? Uh, like, I, I think there's an assumption that the reason why they're looking into it is because there is something new. I think that there certainly pressure from constituents is part of it. Um, you know, all the TV shows hold on to these stories that are being published out there, um, promote them tirelessly. The general public gets interested. And, you know, according to the latest polls, about half of people believe that aliens have visited the earth. And when you say half of people, that includes Congress people. They're up to slice of society just like anybody else. And so I think a lot of them do genuinely, genuinely have an interest whether that's a personal curiosity or legitimately wondering if this is a national security threat or something they need to be concerned about. Uh, there's a variety of reasons. I mean, you've got as many reasons to believe in ufology as there are ufologists. And uh, one point that you make in your movie is that you have seen UFOs as well. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I, I wish I saw them more often. <laughs> Most of the stories I hear are better than mine. But what were yours? Uh, it's pretty fun to see something when you can't figure it out for a few minutes. What were yours? I had, um, one time I was out in Death Valley with some friends, and at, at night we're sitting around, um, you know, having our glass of wine outside at night, and we saw what appeared to be a giant arrow made up just of the outline of an arrow in lights flying overhead. Um, very big, very slow, very quiet took a few minutes to traverse the sky and then about 45 minutes later it came around a second time and when it came around the second time we realized what it was but for those 45 minutes it was among the most exciting of my life I mean I thought holy cow what have I just seen 
I cannot explain this. This goes against everything that, that I understand. So it's a very exciting experience to have. And what was it? It ended up being a formation of planes doing aerial refueling. We're right next to uh, the China Hat, China Hat, um, not China Hat, China Lake um, Naval Air Station is right there. And they do a lot of that. Death Valley has lots of um, military aircraft flying around. That's where the famous Star Wars Canyon is and all of that stuff. Right. And you start by talking about exoplanets in the movie and the probability of life elsewhere in the universe and the laws of physics that prohibit faster than light travel. Um, can you explain that to us? I mean, it's probably best to start with the big picture. Yeah, I mean, we want to answer two questions in the movies. The two questions everyone asks is, are there aliens out there and do they visit the Earth? So we start with, um, you know, I, I really wanted this movie to appeal to everyone, um, not only to people who already have a science-based perspective, but also to the people who have, uh, who are alien visitation believers. And I'm not trying to change anyone's mind or talk anyone out of anything, but I do want to better inform their beliefs with good science. So talking about um, the situation with exoplanets and astrobiology and how we we can't quite do it yet. I mean, we've had the first um, the first potential uh, biosignature detection with the James Webb Space Telescope, but it's really going to be the next generation of space telescopes. We expect to find biosignatures all over the place. There's so many different forms that biosignatures can take, so many different ways that life can happen on a planet, not just carbon-based like it is on Earth. And when we talk about the number of planets and the sheer size of um, our solar, our, our galaxy, and the all of the galaxies in the universe, you know, we have a mathematically non-zero chance that there are alien astrobiologists out there who have noticed the Earth. And to me, that's that's an extremely exciting thought. And I I started with that because. I'm trying to establish common ground because I hope everyone who watches the movie agrees with that, that that's an exciting thought. And the, and the science behind it is real. I, I'm not making things up when I say that Earth has a biosignature and a technosignature that screams to anyone who might be out there watching, hey, there is life here and there is interesting, exciting life on this planet. This is like the best, this is the dream signature the dream spectrum that we would love to find on another planet. And that's what we're shouting out to the cosmos. So once we establish that, that yeah, there's probably a lot of life out there. Here's the reasons we know that. Uh, it's very possible that other life would be interested in Earth in the same way that we would be interested in the same way that we're looking for, for biosignatures on other planets. Then we have to talk about the other question, which is, Will those aliens ever get to visit the Earth? And unfortunately, that's a much tougher question with a less interesting answer, a less fortunate answer, because it's almost certainly no. And um, and isn't you know, what what do you make of the criticism that well, of course, we don't know how to how to travel traverse those vast distances, but we are at our stage of understanding physics and of technology, and presumably, uh, if there are other civilizations that are vastly more sophisticated than our own, it's conceivable that they have found a way around the laws that we think prevent us from traversing enormous distances of space. Yeah, I mean, this is almost a default assumption that a lot of alien visitation advocates make, is that aliens are smarter than us, which means they're magic and they can do anything and the laws of physics don't apply to them. Well, any sufficiently that... advanced uh, technology <laughs> is magic to people who don't yet know it, there, right? Yeah, there you go. It, but you have to understand that this is not a technology question. This is a laws of the universe question, all right? I mean, this is not something that you can engineer your way out of. Uh, special relativity is special relativity. You cannot design a machine that makes special rel relativity go away. The laws of physics and technology are two different things. Whatever technology you create is going to have to understand and work with the laws of physics, just as we do. So if the aliens want to understand what those laws of physics are and see if they can find a way to break them, they're going to have to use mathematics the same way that we've done. And when you use math, 
you get the same answers, whether you're located here or there. The math is going to give you the same answers. And that tells you special relativity is what it is. And this faster than light travel is simply not going to be possible either for us or for them. And I know that there's people on the fringe who say, oh, you can make a, a, a Dyson sphere that completely encircles your sun and you can capture all the energy from your sun and you can make an Alcubierre drive and you can warp space that way. These are all extremely hypothetical and they, they make assumptions of things like exotic matter, things with, that have like negative mass, which does not exist. It, it's something that you know you can use in a, in a mathematical equation to get the answer right, just as you can use, like if you're in high school, you, you might use I, you know, the square root of negative one. That doesn't exist anywhere in the universe, but it is something that we can use in mathematical equations. That's the same thing that these sort of fanciful ideas rely upon. They're hi purely hypothetical. They're not I mean, something that we could ever actually it strikes me that it would be it would be unsound to claim that we know that you can get around the limitations that the laws of physics impose on our technologies for traveling massive distances across the cosmos. But I don't think that's the argument. I think the argument is because we, it would be parochial to assume that the limitations that we perceive constrain all life in the cosmos, and therefore you can't rule out the possibility that alien civilizations can traverse massive distances because we don't necessarily know whether or not they can create wormholes through which they can seemingly travel faster than the speed of light. We, we know about uh, spooky action at a distance on a quantum level where particles can interact with each other fast, seemingly faster than the speed of light. You know, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Uh, we can't superimpose humankind's understanding of the cosmos in the 21st century onto beings that might be thousands of years more evolved than us, which is not to say that that means that they can do it, but it strikes me as uh, plausible to say that does mean that we can't that we can't say that they can't do it. Well, I mean, you're 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 using wishful thinking right now. You're not you're not you're not speaking scientifically. I mean, with, with, when you say that, uh, that well, they're, they have abilities that we don't know. They may they have, they could have abilities that we don't know. They, they could have abilities that we don't know. Based on what? Because we do know a lot about the way the universe works. And we know it doesn't work the way that you're describing. And that's just math. I mean, this is not, this is not us guessing. These are not the laws of humans. These are the laws of nature. Well, hang on. I mean, the the quantum thing that I just mentioned about entanglement is a is a fact of physics. It is true that you can manipulate a quantum particle here, and uh, you know, thousands of light years away, it, its counterpart can also behave in ways that seemingly are faster than the speed of light would permit uh, that information to travel. Now we don't know what's going on there, but it's conceivable well, that another you're misstating could. it. Quantum entanglement does mean that you can affect the quantum state, but you cannot use it to transmit information. That's relativity again. That's just a fact of the way the universe works. You cannot use quantum entanglement to communicate instantly across the across the size of the universe. I mean, it depends how you what you mean by communicate. Like you can you can you can swivel this thing to the left, and its entangled particle will swivel to the left. Yeah, I, I, this is something that's talked about a lot. That. People, if you have a journeyman's understanding of quantum physics, which is frankly what everyone has, <laughs> quantum physics, you know, you know the, the old saying is, if you think you understand it, you don't understand it. Right? right. But this is this is an absolutely fundamental thing. Talk to any physicist and say, we know entanglement is a thing. That means we can communicate instantaneously across across the universe. But no, that's the that's the limitation of the speed of light is that you cannot information cannot travel faster than the speed of light. That is an absolute fundamental, and that includes quantum entanglement. If you need to get more into it than that, you're, then you're going to have to bring on one of your physicists. Because... <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's suppose... Writer, I am not... <laughs> All right, let's suppose that we stick with the not traveling faster than the speed of light, and uh, some civilization just creates uh, spaceships where generation after generation of, after generation of 
uh, of individuals live and they're traveling at 90% of the speed of light and, uh, you know, it takes them however many centuries to get here. Is that, does that break the laws of physics? No, that doesn't break the laws of physics at all. It's, it would be a hell of an engineering problem because of course you've got the, the energy requirements of doing that are going to be absolutely immense, even just to keep living beings alive for multiple generations. Um, but I, there's no reason, there's no engineering reason you, you couldn't do it. You could build yourself an enormous spaceship that could have carry enough, you know, oxygen, food, whatever it is that you're going to need to keep a population alive for a thousand generations, whatever you think it might take to reach however far you're trying to go. That could certainly happen. There's right. no law against that. It's just not very practical. <laughs> and if you wanted to communicate with another planet, send them a radio signal at the speed of light, and you'll hear back in as fast as it's absolutely possible to hear back. So it's it's just it just doesn't make any sense that that's something that you would try before yeah. trying other things first that have a far lower energy cost. And I guess by the time you have tried that, it would seem weird to then get to Earth and only interact with Earth by whizzing around in inscrutable little fuzzy blobs in the sky instead instead of making yourself known in a in a, in a more sophisticated way. Um, yeah. Talk about let's talk about some of the other impediments. The you you mentioned the Christmas tree problem uh, yes. in the film. What's the Christmas tree problem? The Christmas tree problem. That's that's my personal contribution to the field. Uh, people often talk about the distance problem, right? It's very the distances are thousands of light years. It's and everything we've just been talking about. The distance problem is one that everyone's heard and they're familiar with. The other one is the time problem. And we're not talking about the time of travel. We're talking about the time at which these civilizations exist. We've been a technological civilization sending out techno signatures for 50 or 100 years. Um, the universe is 14 and a half billion years old. So we're just not even an, an incredibly tiny blip on the timeline of the universe. Well, just as civilizations are scattered about through space, they're also scattered about on that timeline. So the Christmas tree analogy is imagine a Christmas tree with lights, strings of lights blinking all throughout the Christmas tree. And for the duration of each light being on, that's the lifespan of a technological civilization. Now, if they want to reach another civilizations, they're going to have to find another one whose light is on and not only at the same time, but right next to them. So you got to have two lights in the Christmas tree that turn on at exactly the same time. Their, their blinks are absolutely synchronized and they're right next to each other. Those are the only two that have any hope of potentially making meaningful radio communication back and forth. For the rest of us, even if we are close, we're probably billions of years apart. They came and went long before we appeared and vice versa. So the Christmas tree problem is another difficulty that... Um, really, really reduces the chances of this happening. And it's, it's frankly very annoying and we hate it. <laughs> so, and this is predicated, I guess, on the idea that advanced civilizations are not likely to last for tremendous durations of time. Well, there's things like planet killer asteroids and gamma ray bursts that you can't really do a whole heck of a lot about. You know, a gamma ray burst is like hitting a sandcastle with a fire hose. It, it's gone. Um, it's a stream of neutrons in space that literally would just, the earth would just be completely disappeared. And there's very little that anyone could do about that. A gamma ray burst could end a civilization. It'll eventually hit the solar system. You've got wars and pandemics. Planet killer asteroids are among the most familiar and, and most, most likely. I mean, we know that those have happened to earth in the past and could again in the future. So there's a lot that can, that can terminate a civilization. Thanks for the upbeat uh, assessment of our uh, of our fate. That's great. The um the other thing that people will say when they look at a lot of photos or videos of this kind of stuff of these unidentified objects will be, well, how do you explain uh how do you explain this and sort of throw the burden of proof back on the person who is making no claim instead of accepting the burden of proof from the person who's making the claim that there's something spooky about it. So let's just go through a few ways that it does happen, even though I sort of reject the premise that it is the job of the skeptic to be able to explain every miracle uh, that they're presented with. The parallax illusion is one of them that I found interesting in the film. What's the parallax illusion? 
So that's when, um, what's a, what's a good, uh, a good analogy here. Let's say you've got your friend standing in the yard and you're walking around your friend in a big circle. And if you're filming your friend with a camera, you're going to see the background moving past them. And when you watch the video back, it's going to look like your friend is moving quickly in front of the background. So that's parallax. You've got something that's actually not moving and you've got a background that is moving, appears to be moving because the viewer is moving. And that's the basic explanation for most of these modern Navy UFO videos that we've been seeing so much for the past few years, is there are cases of parallax, um, something that is probably very stationary, probably a balloon, weather balloon, mylar party balloon, uh, and the F-18 jet is filming it as it flies at a thousand miles an hour. So of course the background is going to be sweeping past this thing very quickly. And it looks like this thing is moving fast. You right. Clouds over the ocean, whatever. That's parallax. So, I mean, one way that I find it easy to imagine is if you think of uh, a carrot on a on a stick in front of the face of a donkey and the donkey's looking around and the carrot is dangling. Or if you made a, if you got a ping pong ball and you dangled it from a stick in front of uh, a camera. Or if you had a selfie stick, for example, with a ping pong ball attached to it and you were waving it around, the ping pong ball could look like it's moving very fast against the background, but that's just because you're swinging the... You're in motion, essentially, and so is the ping pong ball. Yeah, the, the, the illusion is less compelling when you're there in person because you, you've got an <laughs> overall view with your... But but when you see it compressed down, you see just a little clip of it on a, on a video screen, all you're seeing is an object in the middle of the screen and a background moving past very quickly. And it looks like someone was stationary holding a camera, filming an object that was moving very fast. It's a, it's, it's a much more compelling illusion when you see it on a screen. I don't want to give away the uh, the end of the movie, but you've sort of alluded to it already, which is that just in terms of the likelihood of the ways that civilizations would contact each other across the cosmos, uh, sending manned vehicles would be would not be the first thing you would do. You would start by sending radio communications. Then, once you if you could get physical objects there, you would probably send unmanned drones of some kind, and then the last step would be little green men, not the first. And the fact that we haven't seen the first two, like we haven't heard anything from other civilizations, gives us an indication that it's unlikely that they're sending creatures. Is that, is that sound? That, that's very sound. Uh, you know, you, you look at um, when you have a task, and let's say we've discovered a planet with very interesting biosignatures. We've decided our task is we want to try and learn more about that or make contact with them somehow if we can. Uh, what is the lowest energy way to, to accomplish our task? It sure as heck is not going to build that giant spaceship we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, it's going to be sending a radio signal, simply um, electromagnetic communication, you know, a laser beam, whatever it is. Um, and try and communicate with them and hope to get an answer. Um, it's, it's, it's the thing that we listened for um, with our SETI projects, our Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence projects. And it's a thing that you know, we've tried a couple of times with you know, not, not making a huge effort, but transmitting simple signals about ourselves into space. We haven't really done much with that yet. Um, although you know, we've been transmitting television and radio just not with a targeted dish, so it's not very likely that it would be picked up so far away. But yeah, that's that's basically it. Why do you think we haven't heard anything? Well, you know, the, the basic reason is because um, the Christmas tree problem combined with the distance problem are very difficult to solve. And it's good evidence that nobody has figured out how to solve both of those. Um, if anyone did notice the amazing biosignatures on Earth and sent us a signal, they probably did it 500 million years ago. And of course, they never got any answer. And so they've since died out from their war or pandemic or whatever. And so we don't even know about them anymore. Mm. You know, the, the, there's, there's, three there's at least three basic things that, that we would do if we got to an alien world. Somehow, whatever technological solution, let's say we got ourselves to some alien. We got the quantum entanglement working at last, Brian. We got the quantum entanglement working. So we would do one of three things. We would jump out on their White House lawn and say hello. 
we would destroy their planet like it's a Hollywood movie, or we would stay up in the clouds and spy on them secretly and, and learn whatever we could. So if we know that those are three options that we might that we might take, any hypothetical aliens out there, they probably have those same three options. And some of them would choose option A, some would choose option B, some would choose option C. Well, we know for a fact here on Earth that nobody has destroyed us. Nobody has jumped out on the White House lawn to say hello. So the chances are nobody has been here to try any of three of those things. Because if it was possible for aliens to travel around and to visit planets, some of them are going to do each one of those three options, probably. So it's not, a, it's not proof, but it's a darn good indication. Right. Why isn't it a one in three chance that they've done the third? Well, it is. It is. But, but that, that presumes that there's only three civilizations out there visiting planets. And they've each chosen one of the three. I mean, w when you talk to some of the ufologists out there, they say, oh, here's, here's some of the races of aliens we know about. There's the gray aliens. There's the tall Scandinavian aliens. There's the ones that look like Bigfoot. There's the interdimensional shapeshifters. They go on and on and on. So if there's so many races of aliens out there, you got to figure that there's going to be at least a few of them trying each of those three options. But nobody has ever done option one or option two. Mm, I see. So we think it's likely that nobody's done anything. So all of the civilizations in the universe have to have to be on the page of option three of sneaking around in the clouds without being seen. <laughs> that, that I mean, one be, uh, be... one point that you don't make in the movie that I think is a good one is, uh, you know, I, I heard Elon Musk uh, mention it, which which is why has there not been an increase in high quality uh videos and photos of ufos as civilization has acquired the ability to take high quality photos and videos and we're walking around with them all the time i mean in the 70s it was quite hard to get your hands on a camera like you had to go inside the house and like pull your camera out and yet we have if anything about the same amount or fewer photos of unexplained aerial phenomena today than we did back in the 1970s when farmers had to go back into the barn and get a camera to take a photo of a disc uh, hovering over the cows you know if that were, if those things were really unexplained you would expect the fact that everyone has a phone in their pocket now to be yielding large num much larger numbers of crazy photos of things and they're not yeah i you, i agree that that's an interesting point um I, i've never seen any data backing that up though i don't know if anyone has ever actually gone back through the newspapers and counted how many reports, how many photographs have there been reported to newspapers each year going back to the 1930s or, or whenever. I would love to see it if that's been published. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd also argue that um, our iPhones really don't take that great of pictures when there's a small dot up in the sky. It's great for taking a picture of your dog in the woods or whatever, but it's not great for it doesn't have a, a good zoom lens. It's it's a digital zoom, basically, right? And so you're just going to get a bunch of pixels. It's not going to take a very good quality picture. You to be that fair, I mean, even the ufologists in the 1970s were not taking great quality pictures of their discs above the cows in the sky. So uh, you were, it's a low bar here, but I take your point. <laughs> Do you remember the Bigfoot from a couple of weeks ago that a guy was running around in a suit outside a train in Colorado? Were you in Colorado for that? You might have been. I must have been, but I must have missed it. What happened? <laughs> well, there, there's a, a guy with a with a sports outfitting shop who owns one of those Geely suits, and he's kind of known for running around town looking like Bigfoot. And apparently he ran alongside a, a tourist train in Colorado. But he's probably a few hundred yards from the train, right? Or meters, whatever it is we say these days. And people took iPhone video of him, and that made it all, all over the news. And that iPhone video is terrible. You cannot see any details on it. So I, I kind of push back a little bit idea that on, on the claim that we've all got HD, wonderful, high-quality cameras on us all the time. Hmm. We do have cameras on us, but they don't take good pictures of stuff that's far away. Interesting. Pardon the interruption. I just wanted to tell you about something that I have been consuming lately, uh, and I've been feeling good. I've been feeling great. You know who else is feeling great? Chuck Norris. He's still kicking butt. He's still staying active. He's well into his 80s, and uh, he looks more jacked than ever. He seems to have more energy than guys half his age. You know what he attributes it to? 
Morning Kick. This is a new daily drink from Roundhouse Provisions. It's got your ultra-potent greens like spirulina and kale, as well as probiotics, prebiotics, collagen, even ashwagandha. Yes, that's right. I know you haven't been getting enough ashwagandha in your life. Well, here it is for you. You mix it with water, you stir it, you enjoy it. Unlike all the other green drinks out there, this actually tastes exactly like strawberry lemonade. It has hundreds of five-star reviews. People are digging it. So roundhouseprovisions.com slash Josh is where you get a discount. You'll also help us if you do this. You get up to 44% off uh, your regular priced order at roundhouseprovisions.com slash Josh. Plus, every purchase is backed by a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you want to experience smoother digestion, a boost of energy, and just an overall healthier body, go to roundhouseprovisions.com slash Josh today. Um, at the beginning of the movie, you say that you, you know, you're approaching this from a scientific point of view. You're interested in what's verifiable uh, rather than, I suppose, anything anything else. Looking at it from a narrative point of view, which might be someone else's take. Is it is it true that what's most verifiable is always most probable? It's what's most verifiable is what's most probable? Not sure I follow you. Well... There are some things that could be calculated to not leave a lot of evidence, but that you might nonetheless piece together or infer their existence. I mean, you know, I don't know. Donald Trump says uh, a lot of important people have been telling him that Ukraine is misusing military funds. Uh, That's a piece of evidence. There's no evidence against it, really. Do I give... Do I... Do I notch that up as a piece of evidence and th- and therefore sort of conditionalize my credences to believe that on probability Ukraine probably is misusing its funds? Or do I roll with a hunch about a narrative about the universe, which is that Donald Trump is so non-credible that it doesn't that that, 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 that sort of doesn't count as a verifiable piece of information? Or I mean you can think of other scientific claims where the theory precedes the observation and uh you know then you will go out and try to test you were mentioning special relativity you know there are cases of that where einstein comes up with the with the idea in his noggin and there's no verifiable uh evidence for it and then we go out and we test the universe and the universe shows it to be verifiable i guess i'm wondering do do all things does does the model of we have to run with the most verifiable explanation always work? Well, I th- I think it does. I mean, when you're when you're trying to establish new science, uh, you have to do that based on based on verifiable evidence. There, there's there's one school of thought that says, um, you know, the whole absence of evidence is not evidence of absence thing, right? I. I'm not sure that that holds up very well. Um, it, it, it does from a purely scientific perspective, but from a when you need to know what's true so you can get through your day perspective, um, an extreme absence of evidence can, I think, be considered for all practical purposes to be evidence of absence. If aliens were visiting the Earth and landing and leaving footprints and footpads and and probing people and slicing up and dicing our cows, there would be some evidence of that. Um, and the fact that we have nothing but a huge number of terrible cases of evidence, anecdotes, pictures of basically nothing, um, when something is real, there would at least be some good evidence mixed in with the bad evidence. And that you have zero except horrible evidence, I think that for practical purposes, you can start to consider that evidence of absence. Now, I, I'm, I'm not saying you, that counts from a scientific perspective if you're trying to prove new sciences, but from a practical perspective, I think you can take it that way. And what do you say to people who say, all right, there may be evidence of absence of alien visitation, but there's clearly something going on in the sky because there are so many uh, weird phenomena that are being spotted by uh, people in military jets and so on that maybe there's an alternative explanation like the military's trying to hide, uh, you know, hyper-sophisticated uh, equipment that they're working on. Maybe it's, uh, 
Maybe it's the Chinese, maybe it's the Russians, maybe it's uh, Elon Musk, maybe it's something else that we don't understand. But there must be a there there because there are too many things that people are are seeing to just wave away and say, well, parallax confusion, bad camera, glint on the windscreen. Well, I mean, you can, you can look at the report released last week by the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which found that uh, the vast majority, um, I don't have the exact quote, even though I was writing an article about it this morning, the vast majority of all the reports turned out to be perfectly consistent with easily explainable things. So they were not interesting. And the ones that remained, uh, a much smaller number simply didn't have enough information to make any conclusion about anything. It would be a pilot says, oh, I saw a thing in the sky. Oh, yeah, show me a picture. Anything? Well, no, I don't have anything. Well, then we don't have enough information to make any conclusion about that. So really, we don't have any evidence that there have been any unexplainable things up in the sky. It's always reported that way. TV shows, people forget TV is entertainment, right? <laughs> you got to stop believing everything that you hear on television. Of course, the TV shows are going to say, pilots are stunned, scientists are baffled. Here's all these weird things that nobody can explain. Well, so far, there haven't been anything that nobody can explain. There's been things that are simply too poor a quality to make any kind of a judgment about. And there's been things that we have perfectly good mundane explanations for. For example, all of the videos that the Navy has produced um, have very solid, perfectly mundane explanations. Uh, we haven't seen anything yet that appears unexplainable to the people who are skilled at determining what's what's shown in these videos. Hmm. So there's, I guess I'm trying to get it. One thing that you say in the movie is we're looking for extraordinary hard evidence and all we're getting are anecdotes. And I'm wondering whether or not the model of looking for extraordinary hard evidence is always valid. I mean, let's let's grant that it may be valid in the case of UFOs, but taking the skeptical outlook as a, a, a worldview, um, are there questions on which it's like, because I think that most UFO believers would concede that point and say, yeah, okay, there's no extraordinary hard evidence, but you're you're, that's setting the bar too high. Uh, that's like asking for extraordinary hard evidence for the existence of free will or extraordinary hard evidence for the existence of God. You know, we're dabbling in areas where there's an enormous amount of uncertainty. So the way that epistemologically I'm just going to arrive at a probabilistic hunch is not going to be driven exclusively by extraordinary hard evidence. I, I think that you can make a personal judgment call for your own satisfaction based on that, but we don't make science conclusions based on that. Um, science cannot say, hey, enough people say that they saw a spaceship that we must, we're forced to admit that aliens are visiting the Earth. Science can't make that conclusion, but a lot of people have done exactly that, as you say. A lot of people have said, there's been so many UFO reports out there, there's got to be something to it. Therefore, I believe that aliens are visiting the earth. That's the kind of thing that I was just talking about a minute ago. From your own practical, for your own practical purposes, you can make conclusions based on less than firm scientific proof. I mean, I Science guess the question is then, would that be, would that be sound? So let's, let's assume that whatever it is that we're calling science can't, uh, you know, that it would be unscientific to make uh, a claim of certainty about something for which there is not extraordinary hard evidence, especially if it's an extraordinary claim. Um, then how do we think about the role that science plays in our own personal epistemology? Like, because it may, that, that, it may be that that excludes quote-unquote science from being the sole yardstick of deciding what we believe doesn't that leave us playing in a broader sandbox of non-science with a large range of issues where there is no extraordinary evidence no hard evidence yeah absolutely it does i mean that's the life we live in every day uh go to the supermarket and uh look at all of the extraordinary dietary claims made by products you know, all natural, this and that, no, no sugar, organic, this and that. Um, all of society is, is so much of society. So all of marketing is based on these kind of conclusions that you're talking about. But I don't know that we've made firm scientific models 
um, forming our theories uh, based on that kind of information. I guess, so are there things that you believe that are not supported by firm scientific models? Absolutely. And, and all of us do. I don't know. I wish I did know so I could fix them. All of well, us believe let, things that are false. Let me, re- let me rephrase that then. Are there things that you knowingly uh, believe that are not supported by rigorous science and that you think are nonetheless sound to believe? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure the answer is yes. I, I, I would love to be able to think of one off the top of my head. Nothing's coming. To I mean, me, what but, about the uh, two that I just speculated on? You know, free will and uh, whether or not there's some creator or purpose to the cosmos. Oh, I, I don't. I don't consider those science questions, though. I consider those more uh, philosophical, uh, and that's not a subject I'm particularly interested in, but. I mean, those are matters of those are matters of um, opinion. I mean, I don't know that science is ever going to try and address the question of is there a god, because science is the process of explaining an observation, and we don't have an observation that says, "Oh, here something supernatural is happening when people pray." Can we can we validate that scientifically? That would be an excuse where we could apply science to a question like that. So. I don't know that those are science questions. Right. I mean, free will might be. Neuroscientists debate whether or not there could be a way in which we articulate our uh, our desires and our ambitions that is not purely caused by every prior you know, you know physical cause in right. our brain and in the Butter- environment and in our genes. Are- yeah. I, I feel we're getting close to the living in a simulation question. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about it, but now that you mention it, sure. <laughs> but I mean, that's I give the same answer for that one because people ask me that all the time. We do not have any observations that indicate that we're living in a, in a simulation. There's perfectly valid theoretical arguments that say, hey, I bet we're living in a simulation because this, 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 and this. But we don't have any observations. There's no evidence that is of, of anything that can't be explained in a way other than living in a simulation. So if Again, there were not a science if there were good theoretical arguments for how alien civilizations could have come here, that would change the probability about what we're seeing in the skies. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you mean if there were if if we had if the laws of physics were a little bit different. And they allowed ways that you could get through wormholes and things like that. That's right. Yeah. Suppose suppose someone at the someone at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva goes, you know what? We've discovered this wrinkle in entanglement, which means that actually, you know, information can be transmitted faster than the speed of light. This is going to upend relativity. Uh, I guess travel over vast distances is possible. Then, do you turn up the dial of probability on your? belief on your non-belief in ufos well i would say my non-belief in alien visitation right Um, yeah um i i would say to that specific question i would say still no because we still have a lack of evidence that we've ever been visited i think it would take some evidence that we've ever been visited um and that's exactly when it becomes a science question because then we have an observation in need of an explanation um, you know, if we found a, you know, a, a crashed spaceship and were able to do metallurgy on it and found that these are isotopes that, uh, that don't exist on earth. Um, you know, that's kind of the classic example that people give. Um, and yes, there are mega rich people who could fabricate such a piece of metal given extraordinary amounts of, of money and resources, but a lot of people would know about it. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine who writes on that stuff and, it's actually quite interesting, but um, yeah, it still would take it would still take the evidence, not just the theory. Um, and does that relate also to you know historical conspiracy theories? Um, I suppose the sort of the 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 broad brushstrokes of what I'm trying to point at would apply also to famous conspiracy theories like JFK's assassination or something where people who think that some, there's probably something fishy about uh, the conventional narrative about how he was uh, assassinated, they might 
say, well, of course, you're not going to get extraordinary hard evidence. Uh, and we know that there isn't extraordinary hard evidence. Although, of course, you can always point to some kooks who say there is extraordinary hard evidence and it's been suppressed. But let's set them aside and, and take the most, uh, you know, the most reasonable version of our opponent's argument here and say that uh, there's a there are theoretical narrative reasons why a person might think that it's a little bit too neat that JFK was assassinated by this one individual who then conveniently got assassinated himself a couple of days uh, afterwards and that there was nothing else going on. And that person is uh, adjusting the, the probability dials in their head in the absence of any hard evidence. Are they playing a foolish game or is that legit? Uh, I I don't know that uh, I don't know that I would choose either of those two um, descriptions. Um, they're they're playing a very human game. They're doing their brains are doing the things that our brains were evolved to do, which is to seek out explanations based on the things that we know and understand and believe about the world. Um, if you are someone who is higher on the conspiracy ideation spectrum. Um, then your brain is going to correctly interpret things. I say correctly, uh, correctly according to its rules of how to work. It's going to correctly see conspiracies where none necessarily exists in the real world. So I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think that, I don't think that that person is um, playing a foolish game. And I don't think that, that, that the alternative means that it has to be true. Right. So I guess what I'm groping towards, so perhaps a little inarticulately, is are we are we guaranteed of getting the likeliest understanding of the world by always and only following the evidence? Or are there occasions in which you have to make a narrative leap, even in the absence of evidence about this specific case and stitch together stories like is there a risk that in you doing your work with such a scrupulous focus on hard evidence that you miss the wood for the trees probably i mean it's a wonderful question uh, and it's it, it's wonderful to think about and i'm sure that some people listening have some ideas and i would love to hear what those are some suggestions for uh, cases where that's happened. Uh, I, I I don't think you're going to get something more reliable than strict adherence to the scientific method and and um, scrutinizing the evidence and really trying to falsify all the evidence. I don't think you're going to get more reliable than that. But I, I do agree, you're probably going to miss some things. Right. Right. So it's more of a numbers game in terms of having faith that in the long run you'll be more right than not. Is it? Because I mean exactly. like there'll be there will be a l- right, right. I mean there'll be a lot of things that an, an a strict adherence to evidence will lead you to miss because we know that there will be things about which evidence will emerge that will affirm some conspiracy theorists uh suppositions or hunches. Your claim is not that that won't happen, but that it's that you're going to be more right more often if you stick with the evidence. Is that right? That that's exactly right. Yeah, right. How did you get interested in in skepticism? Where does the, where does all this come from, Brian? You, you know, th- this is a question that I talk about with with friends and colleagues all the time, and it's it's a very common story. Uh, I grew up reading all the books on aliens and ghosts and and Bigfoot and haunted houses and the Bermuda Triangle and all of that stuff. I believed every word that was in all of those books. And I remember that a certain number of those famous mysteries just stuck with me and were always in the back of my head, making me wonder, how the heck could that have happened? What what What's going on here? And, you know, I, I went to college for writing for film and television and minoring in computer science and dropped out to work in entertainment, which didn't work out for me very well. Um, and I had a long, boring career until podcasts came along. And a podcast, it's like, oh my gosh, here's the perfect convergence of all of my interests. It's got the entertainment aspect. It's got the, uh, it, and, it, and I could do a science show. These were my, these were my core interests. 
So once I had an excuse to start doing this, I kind of just immersed myself in this world of science communication and getting to know science communicators and scientists in every field and, 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 um, writing about everything that they were doing and writing about everything that I could find out and, um, and, and podcasting about all of it and sort of learning, learning the world of science from backwards, you know, coming at it from the entertainment aspect into science rather than coming into it from the front door. And this became the opportunity for me to go back to those things that had been in the back of my mind for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. <laughs> and, and okay, what is going on with the Bermuda Triangle? And what was going on with this famous ghost story? And then you find out that people have already solved those things. People who solved them with the scientific method. And it's like, oh my gosh. And like the whole, you know, the clouds opened up and, and it's like, here is a way that we can actually solve mysteries and find out what's really happening instead of just sticking with the popular paranormal story, which always turns out to be way less interesting than the history of how this and how and why this belief got to be a thing. So that's how I got into it. And that's why I am so, so passionate about doing things the right way is because that leads you to the best possible answer. And when I actually wanted to solve some of these mysteries that I'd always wondered about, that's how you do it. And but is the true? Uh, I just happen. want to pick you up on a on a claim there that the, the the true explanation is always more interesting than the fantasy. It's more interesting to you because you're hardwired as a skeptic. But Fair for enough. a lot of people, there's something. Um, kind of banal and spoilery, right, about the whole mission of skepticism. That there's, a, you know, you hear this from religious people when they're talking about Richard Dawkins or uh, atheists as well, that, you know, there's this there's this magical universe of possible uh, scenarios, uh, whether those are religious, spiritual, uh, conspiratorial, um, or just fantastical beyond belief, like the Abominable Snowman or something like that, or the Bermuda Triangle. And uh, to the to a lot of people, the conspiracy mindset or the that that kind of the whole the jigsaw piece that's missing from their world, uh, which could be anything, is there's something magical about that, and they are hardwired to want to pursue those and to talk about those and to live inside that uncertainty. And what if there really is this? And what if they we really were visited? And what if my you know, grandmother really did uh, appear to me in a dream or whatever it might be. And their emotional response to you, which I'm sure you get all the time, is that, oh, you're a spoil sport. You're coming along and you're kicking over my Lego, you know, and saying, actually, grandma doesn't exist. She was dead all along. She's cold. She's six feet in the cold, cold ground, you idiots. Uh, and that there's something, you know, I'm interested in the, in you, what you get out of it because it can't be true that the the true explanation of i don't know the bermuda triangle i don't even know anything about the bermuda triangle so i don't even know what the true explanation is but that that is necessarily more wondrous than the spooky explanation or is it to you i don't get the feedback that oh you're just you're just a, a wet blanket a party pooper taking away my cherished belief in ghosts uh, i don't get that feedback because <laughs> well, they might not they don't they might not put it that way <laughs> I I really I really work hard to make sure that every show that I do uh, is a net positive for the listener. I don't just try to prove that your belief is wrong. That's not interesting, and it's inherently negative. I try to find the inherently positive thing. I mean, look at the UFO movie that I just made. Right? You can't argue that I'm being negative about anything in that. Uh, I mean, if anything, that's the most hopeful ending for a science-based film. On, on the UFO question that I've ever seen. Uh, I'm trying to give people something that's more and something that's interesting. We, we were talking about parallax a, a little while back. And if you show someone one of the UFO videos, these Navy UFO videos, like the one called Go Fast in particular, if you're listening, it doesn't matter which one I'm talking about, but it's, it's, it's something that's clearly explained by parallax. But if you don't know that, it looks extremely convincing. And that's a wow. That's a great thing. That's like me in Death Valley seeing the giant arrow flying overhead, seeing, look at this thing in this video. This is unexplainable by anything we know. That's amazing. And then you can get this 30 explana 30 second explanation of parallax, and you go, oh, 
Now you've got both experiences. You can stick with the science fiction explanation because it's cool. And you can still look back at the video and say, look how convincing that looks. That's kind of neat. And on top of that, now you have a real explanation for what's really going on. You're actually smarter and you're actually right. And the belief is actually true. To me, that's a net positive. And I've never come across a story. Um, I've never produced a story where you don't have that. I would never do a story that's just, oh, grandma's poodle isn't really psychic. Um, I would find, I would find something interesting about how and why that story came to be that makes people go, oh, that actually is really cool. I love grandma's poodle, uh, adorable little, <laughs> a little adorable little pooch. Now I've got the Bermuda Triangle in my head. Can you tell me what the Bermuda Triangle is? It's a it's a geographic triangle inside of which nothing interesting has ever happened. <laughs> I mean, how did it how did it come to be? It was literally fictional. Um, it came to be a good guy named Charles Berlitz wrote a book called the Bermuda Triangle and he just made a bunch of shit up. Um, that's unfortunately the, the, the truth of the Bermuda Triangle. Um, he took says the man who says he's not kicking over children's uh, sandcastles. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing to it. He made some okay. shit up. Let me give you an it's example. It's not interesting. There's no there there. Let me give you an example. Uh, flight. Um... Oh, darn. I can't remember the flight number. But there was five. No. No. No, sorry. I, that was, no, that was Malaysia. Triangle. Yeah. The, okay. I, I, I'm still on Bermuda Triangle. Okay. So there was five TBM Avengers that flew out on a training mission, and all five of them disappeared, making mysterious radio transmissions saying, our instruments are going crazy. The clouds are going insane. And they all five disappeared. That's one of the most famous stories from the Bermuda Triangle. And by itself, that sounds interesting. But the real explanation of what happened is, to me, way more interesting than that. Well, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, the entire thing was the fault of the instructor. Um, this instructor had come from the Pacific Theater in World War II, where he had twice before gotten lost and had to ditch his plate in the ocean because he ran out of fuel and had to be rescued. That had happened to him twice. This guy apparently was the most astonishingly bad navigator with the world's worst sense of direction, and he was somehow made it to be a flight instructor on Florida. Now, Florida is on the east coast of the United States, and if you fly east from Florida, you're just going to go over open ocean. You're going to go over the Pacific, the, excuse me, the Atlantic Ocean, and you're you're going to run out of fuel and crash into the water. You have no options to land out there. The Bahamas. He was leading all five of his guys. What? The Bahamas. They actually went to the Bahamas. They were they had done a they had done a, a bombing run. They had made, made a big triangular flight uh, of mock bombing runs, and then after that, they were still flying east. Now, even though he had just done those things, he somehow got it in his head that he was west of Florida in the Gulf of the Gulf of Mexico. And he was telling his students, we need to fly east to get back to Florida. And the students are saying to him, because we have transcripts of this, which didn't make it into Charles Berlitz's book, the students are telling him, dude, you are wrong. We just we were just in Bahama. We are not over the Gulf of Mexico. Uh and he radioed back to base sometime. He said, well, obviously my compass must be wrong because we're going the right direction. That one comment by him over the radio is what got morphed into, our instruments are going crazy. They're spinning wildly. And it was just simply a case of this, this guy leading his four poor students to their deaths. Well, there, there was two, three guys in each one of these planes. Um, and we have the whole radio transcript. Wow. So not only is the story completely unsupportable because we have the actual radio transcripts and we know what happened, to me, that story of how it actually took place, that's that's a stock that's mm. mind blowing that this guy could have been that far wrong and so many people died as a result. It, the so, news flash is idiot says, Trust me, not my instruments. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, exactly, exactly what happened. Uh, spoiler alert, the instruments were right. The idiot was wrong. 
Uh, Brian, I want to ask. I want to ask you about what we should be doing to contact extraterrestrial civilizations and whether or not we should be broadcasting ourselves into the universe. But I'll do that in our bonus uh, section, which is for our our subscribers. If you want to subscribe, uncomfortableconversations.substack.com. Thank you so much, uh, Brian, for uh, for being on the free show. So, at the end of your film, you say, um, you know, we should be broadcasting into the universe to to try to make contact with possible alien civilizations. But don't most people who work on in this field think that that could be risky? Why are you saying that? To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen, and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for uncomfortable conversations with the substack.